I want you to imagine for a moment that you're at home with your family having dinner together. Maybe you bow your heads together as you do at the start of many meals and offer thanks to God for the blessing of His provision. Invite Him to be present at the table with you as you reflect on the day and enjoy each other's company. No sooner have you closed your prayer when there is an aggressive knock at your door and suddenly the door comes crashing off its hinges and a group of uniformed officials storm into your dining room. They seize you and handcuff you and your spouse and your children and they drag you out of your house and force you into police cars. You object, you try to find out why they're doing this, what's going on, and The only explanation given is that your faith in Jesus Christ has been discovered and it must be put to an end. They take you to jail where you'll be placed in separate cells, not even given the courtesy of a phone call to a loved one. All you can do is pray to God for His intervention. The scene sounds barbaric. Sounds absurd to us. Probably hard to imagine something like that happening to us, certainly in our world, in our culture, in our day and time. But in fact, it's an experience that was not at all uncommon for Christians in the first century. In fact, there's even places in the world today where that's not all that uncommon. In the first century, for Christians, both Roman and Jewish authorities regarded the Christian faith as a threat to their power and position, and they sought to snuff it out. One of the leaders of this movement to end Christianity and who was personally responsible for many Christian families being imprisoned in this way was a man named Saul, or as we've come to know him, the Apostle Paul. Those are not two, that's not a name change that happened for him, but he was born a, as, as a Hebrew, as a Jewish man, and as a Roman citizen. And so Saul is the Hebrew version of his name and Paul is the the Greek version of his name. And so at times you'll see it differently in the New Testament. But he is one and the same guy. Now here's the deal. Paul wrote roughly two-thirds of the New Testament. His teachings concerning faith in Jesus Christ and Christian living have blessed countless millions of Jesus followers through the centuries. During his lifetime, he traveled extensively throughout the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, training pastors, and encouraging Christians in their faith. He eventually will be killed as a martyr, counting faithfulness to Jesus Christ as more important and precious to him than preserving his own life. What changed? It's a question that comes resounding to me as I look at the life of Paul, where he is going into homes and dragging Christians away to put them in prison, and then later in his life he is the chief like proponent of the Christian faith and a pioneer of Christian missions. How does a guy whose life ambition is to snuff out Christianity by persecuting Christians, dragging men and women to jail, even presiding over the stoning and execution of Christian leaders? How does this guy become a pioneer of Christian missions? 
one of the most famous and beloved proponents of the Christian message, and the most widely read teacher of the Christian faith. What happened? The answer, in a word, is Easter. Easter happened. For the Apostle Paul, as with Peter and Thomas, whose stories we've looked at the last two weeks, Easter changed everything. You see, Easter is profoundly practical and deeply personal. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is more than just a theological idea or just a historical event upon which the truth claims of Christianity rest. It's not less than those. It is those. But it's more than that. Easter is where the power of God and the love of Christ meet us at the point of our deepest brokenness. Right where we feel like the biggest mess. Where our sin runs deepest, Easter meets us right there and forges for us a pathway toward restoration and wholeness. This whole series of messages, there's four of them all together, concluding with next Sunday on Easter, the whole premise for this message is, is twofold. Number one is that the resurrection of Jesus had a profound effect on the lives of His first followers. The ones who knew Jesus in the flesh, who saw Him after He had risen from the dead, nothing was the same for them after that. They were totally changed. They were all the way in. And number two, that same resurrection grace is available to us today. Just as the resurrection of Jesus made this enormous life-altering difference in the lives of His first followers, it can make the same difference for us today. Just as Peter found resurrection grace to cover his shame and guilt over his denial of Jesus. Just as Thomas found resurrection grace to answer his doubts about the reality of Jesus and His kingdom Just as Paul, as we'll see today, finds resurrection grace to repurpose his life, so too can you and I find resurrection grace to give us new peace, new confidence, and new purpose to live our lives. So Easter is more than just an idea. Easter is more than just a historical event. Easter changes everything if we will let it. If we'll come to Jesus in faith and see the risen Christ, it can change everything for us. So today we're going to focus, as you've already surmised, on the life of Paul, the Apostle. Now in order to to understand what a profound and personal effect the resurrection had on Paul, we've got to get a glimpse of what his life was like B.C., that is before Christ. In his before Christ days, what what did his life look like? The first thing is to note is that Paul was second to none in terms of his religious pedigree and zeal. In Philippians chapter 3, he begins speaking of all of the reasons that he would have to be confident in his flesh if that were, in fact, a worthwhile thing to do, which he's arguing it's not. But he says, if anyone has any reason to boast about things of the flesh, it would be me. And he gives this list of things that were true of him just in his upbringing and in his life. He says, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. So he's like 
already from day one is fulfilling uh, the, the call of God to these old covenant Jews. He was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, so he knows his heritage. He's got a good, strong Jewish lineage. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like among the Hebrew people, I was maybe the most Hebrew of them, right? Uh, could be referring to the fact that he even speaks um, Aramaic, which was the language that, uh, that the Jews would have spoken at that time. Then he says, as for religious zeal, a Pharisee. You've heard of the Pharisees. We've encountered them a good number of times in John's Gospel. The Pharisees are the ones who are zealous to defend and to carry out and to enforce God's law. Right? If anybody knew the law of God inside and out, knew how to be the good religious Jew, it was the Pharisees. And they were passionate about it, and they were passionate about making sure other people were measuring up. Jesus, in fact, has some of his strongest words in his earthly ministry for this group of people who take the law of God and make it a millstone around the neck of his followers. But he was a Pharisee, right? And then he says that in terms of his zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. I gave you a glimpse of this a little earlier uh, in outlining Paul's transformation. I want, I want us to look a little bit in the book of Acts. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures, turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to jump around just a little bit this morning. In at least two different places. In Acts chapter 7, what we have going on here is the first uh, Christian martyr. The first execution of somebody because he has proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ. And a man named Stephen who stands up and begins preaching boldly the gospel, um, really kind of a biblical history of how God had led his people in Israel and made promises of a Messiah and all the way down to the, through the current age where Jesus has been presented to them and they crucified him and he rose. And so he just tells the whole story about Jesus. And then at the end of his sermon... I've never had a sermon go quite this bad. Uh, Starting in verse 54 of Acts 7, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They seriously were going, la, 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 not going to listen, right? And they rushed at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. That is, threw big rocks at him until he died. That was their response to his sermon. Please don't do that to me today. Look at verse 58. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, a lot like Jesus, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. So, Paul, Saul, is basically presiding over the stoning of Stephen. The guys who are getting ready to like hurl these big rocks got to take off their outer garments so they can get some real elbow grease going. What are we going to do with this? And, and Paul says, here, I'll hang, I'll hang on to him for you. Right? 
So Paul is, is presiding over the execution of Stephen for simply preaching Jesus. Let's keep looking in, verse, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so the, the apostles, that first band, the closest followers of Jesus, stayed there in Jerusalem. But Christians are now spreading out because of the persecution. They're trying to get away from it, essentially. And so they spread throughout the region, which is going to prove to work against Paul and the others who are trying to snuff out Christianity, because now what they've done is spread it. Because now you've got Christians everywhere all over the empire who are going to be telling people about Jesus, and so Christianity spreads, and we see God's wisdom and providence at work there. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. House after house. This was a repeated practice of Paul to go into homes and break them up and drag them off to prison and it actually would have been pretty common in in this kind of a setting to to identify Christian leaders and pull them away and imprison them in hopes that as an example to the others that they might the other Christians might go okay maybe I don't want to do this after all because they've seen their leader be dragged away but Paul is even dragging away the women so he's even more devout, even more zealous in his persecution of the church than you would even typically think. And so dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. This is what Paul is doing. And here's the thing, he thinks he's serving God. Right? Because he's a zealous, zealous for the Word of God, the law of God Jew. He thinks this is a part of his service to God is snuffing out Christianity, which is, again, blasphemous because they recognize another king and they're calling this man, Jesus, the Son of God, which is not true in their minds. And so they have to snuff it out. And Paul is ravaging the church is the the language used there in Acts 8.3. Hostile. An insolent opponent, he called himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you skip ahead just a little bit to Acts chapter 9, the very beginning of 9, it gives us another glimpse into what, what Saul is up to. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which is the city to the north, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the Christian faith, that's what they called it, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul is now on a mission to go to another city. Since now Christians have been spreading out, he goes, all right, got to go to another, I got to go target other cities and drag Christians back to Jerusalem so that we can condemn them there. We can put them in prison, perhaps stone them. And so he's on his way to Damascus with authority. He's got a letter from the high priest saying, by the way, if Paul finds Christians, he has our authority to take them and to drag them to Jerusalem 
bound. So that's what Paul is up to. His B.C. days, his before Christ days, are not a pretty picture. He is a zealous opponent of the church of Jesus Christ. And by extension, a zealous opponent of God Himself. Because that is what God is doing. God has sent Jesus, His Son, who lived and died and rose for sinners. And He has put people by faith into this church community into this body of faith and Paul is ravaging the church and trying to pull it apart and snuff out Christianity. What were you like BC? Do you remember your before Christ days? Do you remember before you turned to Jesus Christ in faith and made Him Savior and Lord? What was your life like? Paul himself says in Colossians 1.21 that we were hostile in mind doing evil deeds and that He has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. So before we turn to Christ in faith and, and recognize the reconciliation that Jesus was doing in His death, we were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Recall your hostility of mind? What, were there things in your mind, beliefs that you held that were in opposition to things of the Lord? Opposition to the Gospel? Were there ways maybe that you even hated God? Were mad at God? Would have shaken your fist at Him? Given Him a piece of your mind if you had the opportunity? Recall your fleshly indulgences. Your rebellion against God. Were there ways that your life was spiraling out of control or indulgent in sin and rebellion. Have you thanked Him lately for the change in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus and you can think back on the days before you knew Him, what your life was like, and now you're on the path of faith and following Him, I'm sure you've seen God at work I'm sure you've seen some of those hostile attitudes and mindsets change. I'm sure you've seen His help and strengthening and victory in areas of sin and struggle and weakness. It's good for us to look back so that we can remember where we came from and to give thanks to God for the work He's doing in us. The work He has done to change us and to, to strengthen us and to make us more like Him. because that's, that's what He's after. He is after conforming us to Christ. So think about your B.C. life. And give thanks to God for any evidence you see in your life of His grace at work. Changes that He's made. So something's going to happen to Paul. It's going to change everything for him. And if we continue reading in Acts chapter 9, we'll find out what that is. So Paul has been breathing threats and murder against the church. He's got this letter from the high priest giving him authority to drag Christians from Damascus back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned. Look at verse 3 of Acts 9. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's getting pretty close now to the city where he's going to drag Christians away. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That is a business trip gone awry, for sure. A blinding light from heaven literally removes his sight for three days, and the voice of Jesus calls out to him, why are you persecuting me? I think it's interesting to note that he doesn't say just why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting the church? What you do to them, you do to me. Why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you? Lord there just means like sir. He's not recognizing Jesus necessarily as like king and master. And he tells him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now if you were to continue in Acts chapter 9, you'd find that he goes to a place in Damascus and God is simultaneously talking to a guy, another Christian named Ananias. And he tells Ananias in a dream or a vision, I'm bringing Saul, who you've heard of as this persecutor of Christians, I'm bringing Saul here and I want you to go to him and pray for him that he'll receive his sight. And Ananias goes, I don't know about this, Lord. Have you thought this through? Saul is like kind of a beast toward the Christian faith. And I've heard stories about him dragging people away and him presiding over the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem. I'm not sure that he's going to take too kindly to me, a Christian, coming to him. And God says to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God says, I don't care. It doesn't matter how big and bad and ugly his life was or is, how rebellious he's been, how scared of him you are. I've got a purpose for him. I'm going to use him. He's going to carry my name to the Gentiles and to the children of Israel. So go, he tells Ananias. Go and speak to him. And so Ananias does. He obeys and he goes and finds Saul. And he says to him in verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And in the very next verse, Paul is in the synagogue preaching Jesus. Whiplash. 
That is an unbelievable turnaround. He was on his way into Damascus to arrest Christians. And instead, he gets to Damascus and starts preaching Christ in the synagogue. That is an amazing transformation. Just like that. Transformation doesn't always happen just like that. We'd like for it to. We'd like for it to be quick and instantaneous and I just open my eyes one day and boom, everything's different and I'm a different person and life is better. And all. We'd like for it to happen that way. But it doesn't usually happen that way. God can do what He wants. God did that in the life of Paul. But most of the time, it's a little bit slower. It's a little bit more painful. It's a little bit more like becoming increasingly aware of sin and brokenness in our lives and feeling gross about it and coming to God and going, I am a mess, please help. And people, brothers and sisters in Christ in the church coming around you and saying, let me help you with that. Let me give you some wisdom that might guide you. Let me pray with you for God's help. And there's this gradual process that happens throughout our lives where we grow to be more like Him. And to be sure, Paul's sanctification is not complete at this moment. But this is a drastic turnaround. What happened? He met the risen Jesus. That's it. That's the only thing you can attribute this drastic change in Paul's life to. He hated the church. He hated Christianity. He was trying to kill it. He meets Jesus, even from heaven. Like Peter and Thomas and James and John, those guys, they actually, like while they were, Jesus was still on the earth, had like face-to-face encounters with Jesus. Paul gets the bright light from heaven and the voice thing, which is a little bit farther removed from what the, the first apostles experienced. But he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed everything. So now let's look at Paul's new life. What effect did this have on him? We've already seen that day one, after he receives his sight and is baptized, he's preaching. He's in the synagogues of Damascus preaching. I'm going to invite you now to turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. If I had the page number on that green Bible, I'd call it out. Anybody spots that? You can shout it out for us. Philippians chapter 3. 817, thank you. If you've got one of those paperback Bibles, it's 817. So Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. And he's warning them about False teachers, essentially people who would force Gentile converts to the Christian faith to live like an Old Testament Jew. Saying that they've got to be circumcised, they've got to follow Jewish dietary law, and all those kind of things in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, that's false. The gospel is grace through faith in Christ, period. You're righteous not by the stuff you do, but by who you trust. You trust in Christ and He makes you righteous by faith. And so he's saying, beware of them. They put all this confidence in the flesh. And that's in the context of what he said. If anybody had a reason to boast in his flesh, it'd be me. Hebrews, Hebrews, Benjamin, all that stuff, right? That's where that all comes in. A Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look at verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him that is united to Christ by faith and everything that is His becomes ours. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is a different Paul. This is a Paul who has come to see, in his words, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So that everything else that came before it, all of the kind of spiritual and religious pedigree and credentials that he could boast about, rubbish, useless, meaningless. If I can just know Jesus, what it became for him to know Jesus, to share in his sufferings, and to be used by him. And we know that He was used by Christ in very powerful and lasting ways. And so, I've suffered the loss of all things and I don't care. I count it rubbish. I'm willing to lose it all. Why? Because I may gain Christ. That's it. Everything in the world over here, Jesus over here, don't care. Rubbish. Just give me Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Is knowing Jesus Christ the driving passion of your life? Do you regard your former life and all lesser pursuits, even in this life, as rubbish compared to the joy and worth of knowing Jesus? Confession. I don't. Not always. There are far too many times and ways that I fail to make knowing Jesus my highest aim. Maybe the same is true for you. When we put some other value or pursuit above our relationship with Jesus, we're essentially choosing rubbish over joy. We would have the surpassing joy and worth and value of knowing Christ personally, as a friend, as our guide and shepherd and we're choosing rubbish instead when i hit the snooze button instead of opening god's word and hearing the voice of jesus in the scriptures i'm choosing rubbish over joy when i pass on the opportunity to help someone in need because i don't want to be inconvenienced i'm choosing rubbish over joy when i give less to the work of jesus through the church 
because I want to spend a little extra on that new gadget I've had my eye on, choosing rubbish over joy. This is what we do. There's something, the way that this passage unfolds that I think is instructive for us. See, Paul's devotion, this radical devotion that he has now to Jesus follows a sort of pathway that he lays out for us in verses 8 through 11. So first, knowing Jesus becomes his highest aim. So we get that phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. All former plans and lesser pursuits, to use the line from an old hymn, grow strangely dim. Don't even see them the same anymore. Don't care about them. Jesus becomes not only the most important priority in life, but also the grid through which all of life is filtered, through which decisions are made, etc. Is knowing and glorifying Jesus going to be possible or hindered in this decision that needs to be made? So knowing Jesus becomes the highest thing. Then there is a sharing in Jesus' suffering. He says in verse 10, that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul certainly suffered. In fact, what he told Ananias, what God said to Ananias before he sent him to Saul was, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. His ministry cost him dearly and eventually led to his execution. But he regarded his sufferings as a companionship of sorts with Jesus. Jesus suffered. When I suffer, I'm walking the same road as Jesus. We don't really like this part. We'd rather not know Jesus in his sufferings. We want to skip that stuff and just go to the resurrection. Can we skip the death and go to the resurrection? But before something can be resurrected, first it has to what? To die. Death comes before resurrection. Easter can't happen until Good Friday has been a reality. So there's a sharing in Jesus' suffering. And then there's an experiencing of resurrection power. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. So Even in the midst of the suffering and the hardship, the risen Jesus is there with us. I think that's what Paul means by knowing the power of His resurrection. The strength and endurance that come from the experience of Jesus' active living presence in our lives. We get to know Jesus as we experience sufferings and trials. That's the resurrection power that comes in. And then finally, that by any means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And I think he means that literally. There is a day coming where we will be raised. This is all headed to a future, final, glorious resurrection where we will share in His endless life for all eternity. We get so bogged down in the details and distractions of life that we often forget this isn't all there is. And in fact, this isn't even the biggest part of our lives. When you look at the span of eternity... Once we get to the other side of this, we have literally unending time after that in the resurrection life with Jesus. But all we see is these few years that we've got on earth. And we get so distracted and so worried and so 
anxious. Think about this. Long for this. Live in light of this. There is a future resurrection coming for those who have met Jesus and called Him Savior and Lord. There is a resurrection life and hope and peace that will never end. And just as Paul says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead, that should be a motivating, driving sort of impulse for us. There is a resurrection coming if I can just hold on. So in the life of a Christian, there's, there's obviously a first encounter with the resurrected Jesus. There is an initial meeting whereby He opens our eyes to our sin and our need for a Savior. He grows faith in our hearts to recognize that He alone has met the demands of the law and suffered its penalty for us. And He applies the forgiveness and grace of the Gospel to our hearts, declares us righteous before God. I believe that's the kind of encounter that Paul had in Acts 9. While our encounters with Jesus might not be as dramatic as Paul's, I've never met anyone who actually like heard the voice of Jesus or saw a blinding light. Nevertheless, each of us, if we're followers of Jesus, has had a similar encounter where the good news of the crucified and risen Christ and the new life that He affords us by faith came to our ears and by the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts we were enlivened. It's not even a word. I made that up. Made alive by faith. But here's the thing. I believe that encounters with the risen Jesus don't just belong in the past. It's not only in the rearview mirror. Like, oh, remember that one time that I encountered Jesus? That was cool. I wish that could happen again. Because He's alive and active today. And He's speaking to us through His Word and by His Holy Spirit and through His church, His his people. Through the Holy Spirit, He's convicting us of sin calling us to obedience, commissioning us to carry His love and light to the world around us. Encounters with the risen Jesus are available to us now and always. In the Gospel, He's promised us His presence to the end of the age. That's what He said to the disciples in Matthew 28. There are opportunities all the time throughout our moments, days, and weeks to meet with the risen Jesus. Here's the question. Are we taking advantage of those opportunities? Are we prioritizing time with the Lord in prayer, in His Word, in Christian fellowship, in service to others? If you examine your life and mostly what you see is sin, weakness, unforgiveness, brokenness, let me ask you, when's the last time you met with Jesus? If an encounter with the risen Jesus is what it takes, to make us new, why, oh why, don't we take advantage of His open invitation to draw near? Revelation 3.20, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with Me. Oh, that we would heed His invitation and run to Him and meet with Him and open our hearts to Him so that we He would continue His sovereign work of transformation and sanctification in our lives. 
You know, that's why I love the final few verses of this passage. We'll conclude with this. Look at verse 12 through 16 of Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You know what this means? It means God is not done with us. It means God is still working in us. The same resurrection grace that so utterly transformed Paul from a church destroyer to a church planter is alive and at work in all those who have named Jesus as Savior. Do you know Him? Have you met Him? Have you opened your your heart to Him and welcomed Him into your life? If you haven't, you can do that today. Just confess to Him that you're a sinner. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on a cross and rose again to give you new life and then ask Him to receive you as a son or a daughter and make you new. If you've never done that, you've never made that decision and you need help, just come talk to me at the end of the service. I'd love to walk with you through that decision. For those of us who've met Jesus, for those of us who count ourselves His followers, may we purpose in our hearts this very moment to put Him in His rightful place as Lord in our lives. And to respond more frequently and intentionally to his invitation to eat with him. And so be changed. Let's pray.